I'm always glad that we call this sharing. <laughs> you know, because it just frees you up. Although I did do a lot of study. I'm never quite sure if my study is, if I'm, if I'm getting the exact right things that are true. But when you share, you have a little bit more leeway. So anyway, um, I will try. <laughs> so I'm going to begin by giving a summary of Chapter 2. Um, my passages were Chapter 211 to 332, which is the end of the chapter. So my summary is this. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem carrying the letters of passage and the orders given by King Artaxerxes, and he was accompanied by a cohort of the king's army. After a few days' rest, he goes on an inspection mission of the walls from outside the city, and he does this secretly and at night. He returns and immediately calls together the Jewish leaders, the priests, nobles, and officials, and says to them, Jerusalem is in ruins. Let us rebuild let us no longer be in disgrace. And then he encourages them in their work and tells them about the gracious hand of God as he prepared for his journey and of what the king had said and done for him in supporting the task ahead. And the Jews replied, let us start rebuilding immediately. And they get to work. And then looking ahead, we learn that the Jews rebuilt the wall in 40 sections with seven gates and we also learned that this was done, at least as far as we know, harmoniously. There's no evidence of grumbling, arguing, complaining among all the people doing the work. And it was done quickly. They finished up to half the height of the original wall in 52 days. And as soon as the work begins, there is opposition. The outsiders mocked and ridiculed them. Why are you doing this? Are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah answered them, the God of heaven will give us success, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem, nor any claim, nor historic right to it. So that's the summary of the passage, uh, chapter 2. So looking back, I'm going to do a little bit of an overview. Um, and this, this is, you know, when we speak on the I find that we do a lot of repeating because there's a lot of repeating to be done. So, um, <laughs> so I sent that to Sherry after... Just spoke last week, and she said, oh, we need to hear it again. <laughs> so thank you, Sherry. Um, anyway, um, so what we know about Ezra and Nehemiah, it occurs in the Bible before the Book of Psalms, but it um, occurred historically um, at the end of the Old Testament era. And I love this that Eric gave us when we were studying Genesis. Genesis and... He's talking about the, the, the covenant people being chosen and the covenant leaders. And he talks about, he talked about the blessing and curses of the covenant. And then about um, the exceptions where the outsiders are drawn into the covenant. And here's Genesis. And here's Ezra and Nehemiah. So, I don't know, did anyone besides us say this? I think his daughter did the or his niece did the artwork. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna do a little bit of the history right by that time, right by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, 2 Chronicles 36 tells us about Nebuchadnezzar coming and um, destroying the city. I'll find that in a minute and. Uh, what we read, and that's 2 Chronicles 36, uh, 15 to the end of the chapter, which is 25. But I just want to read 19 just to say 
They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value in there. So it was complete destruction. As we, um, and then in Ezra 1 and 2, we read about the return of the Jews under Zerubbabel, a descendant of David and Jeshua of the priestly line and other leaders. And that was um, the first year of King Cyrus. And this group numbered about 50,000. That's what I think it did. Pretty sure it did. Um, they carried articles, they carried back to um, Jerusalem articles belonging to the temple and um, free will gifts from, the neighbors, from their friends and neighbors in Babylon in order to rebuild. Um, so they returned to Judah, they returned to their ancestral towns in Judah, and they returned to Jerusalem. And that's two verses one. Um, they return, yeah, each to his own town. Um, and that's usually by tribes. A certain tribe would have a certain area where they um, would return to. Um, in the seventh month of their return, they gathered in Jerusalem and built an altar to the Lord. That's Ezra three, beginning of Ezra three. And seven months later, they begin to rebuild the temple, laid the foundation. That's the middle of Ezra three. But after a few months, the rebuilding of the temple stopped for 15 years due to opposition from the non-Jews and the outsiders. We read about that in Ezra 4, beginning of Ezra 4. Um, work was restarted and the new temple dedicated in the sixth year of Darius. So work stopped for 15 years during the rest of the reign of Cyrus and the beginning of the reign of Darius. And it is dedicated in 1516 B.C., exactly 70 years after its destruction by Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> so in the middle of Ezra 4, we find this odd, out-of-place passage about a, a later opposition from local leaders during the time of Ezra and of Artaxerxes, about 50 years later than the rebuilding of the temple. These letters of opposition referred specifically to the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. Um, these letters were written to two kings of Persia, Xerxes and Artaxerxes, over a period of about 20 to 25 years. <clears throat> In the beginning of his reign, Artaxerxes replied to these letters and commands that the walls are not to be rebuilt. And we see that in Ezra 4, 21 to 22. Work on the walls is discontinued. And there is evidence later from Nehemiah 1 that the walls were destroyed and the wooden gates burned. And that's what Nehemiah's brother says to him in Nehemiah 1. So as we see in Ezra 7 and following, Artaxerxes gave Ezra the authority to reestablish Mosaic law and to appoint magistrates in Judah and to further improve the temple, but not to rebuild the walls, though he, meaning Artaxerxes, had left the option open that he could order them to be rebuilt. So he didn't, we don't read that he tasked Ezra with doing that job. And just to place Ezra in the reign of Artaxerxes, he um, returned to Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh reign. This is all background, guys. <laughs> so going on to the present time. So now we're in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah comes into the picture. As we read, as we st uh, read about last week, he was much afraid to make the request of the king. As we can see, it was audacious to request anything having to do with strengthening a subservient city, 
especially one that had a history of rebellion. So, um, why would Artaxerxes allow, decide to allow the walls to be rebuilt? Or as the commentary um, I was reading said, why would a Persian authority encourage the rebuilding of the walls of a vassal state, essentially militarily strengthening them? This might well encourage later rebellion and thus come back to haunt them. And one of the, one of the um, surmises that they came up with is that the Persian Empire under Artaxerxes at this time was having problems externally and especially on its western front. Um, I got this from the introduction to the Old Testament by Longman and Dillard. Um, uh, the historian's name is Hogland or Hoagland. Uh, from historians writing close to that era, we learned that there had been a revolt in Egypt against the Persian governor or satrap, satrap. And at the same time, the Greeks were looking for inroads into the Persian-controlled areas along the Eastern Mediterranean, and so they joined the Egyptians in their rebellion. This was in the mid-400 BCs. This group of Egyptians and Greeks were defeated, in fact, destroyed by the, a Persian general named Megabyses in the 470s. But there were still concerns, and to quote from Hoagland, the city of Jerusalem could serve, if needed, as a military garrison against both Egyptian and Greek interests on the Western Front. So militarily and probably politically, there had been there were good reasons for Artaxerxes to allow the walls to be rebuilt. But behind it all, of course, as we read in the word, it was the Lord's doing. The gracious hand of God that Ezra and Nehemiah often referred to. So let's go on in chapter two. Um, reading, starting verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Then, without telling anyone, he goes around the city. <clears throat> and um, he starts at the valley gate, heads south to the dung gate, and east. So we don't really know much about what was going on, but um, <clears throat> Jerusalem at that time looked kind of like this. There was the temple area at the Doris, and it, it was kind of blocked up. It had its own citadel, as they say, the city of David at the bottom, so it's kind of like this. Ezra, uh, Nehemiah went out here, Valley Gate, they think, was here, and down here on a horse at night, um, looked at the walls down here. The, uh, they think, they're pretty sure the dung gate was down here, assuming that's where the dung was carted off. Um, these were the city of David. This was the uh, this was the section that had stairs and a pool, and then stopped by the rubble here. So he went out to the Kidron Valley, looked around, and came back down and went this way. I don't know why he didn't go all the way around. I've never been to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. so, I'd like to go. <laughs> so, um, that just gives you a picture of what he was doing. <clears throat> And I have a couple thoughts about this section. And this is a quote from the NIV note. Um, it seems as though the people living in Jerusalem at that time had become quite reconciled to the fact that the walls were in ruins, that this, that, that was just the way life was. That's just the way things were. And uh, it took an outsider to assess the situation and to rally them to renewed efforts. Um, my guess is also they... Um, um, they had kind of gotten used to being 
um, in pretty close relationship to everyone around them, so it didn't really matter. People were free to go back and forth around that area. Um, more on that later. Uh, the other thing, and this is what um, Jess brought up last week from Karen Keller, um, Nehemiah inspected the wall from the outside, from the enemy's vantage point, in order to understand what the Jews' enemies would see as their weakness. And I think that was in preparation for planning how the walls would be rebuilt. Um, <clears throat> and then continue with Karen Carol, Keller. When Nehemiah finally spoke to the remnant living in Jerusalem, comprising of priests, nobles, officials, and ordinary people, he gets them on board by recounting how God's hand had been with him, including the interview with the king and its abundant outcome. And the people replied, let us begin to rebuild, and they started to. And then opposition. Now I just want to go into a little bit about who these people were. Sanballat, well, there were men of power and influence, but Sanballat later became a governor of Samaria. That's from outside historical reference. And by the way, this is all from Kidner, who's one of our commentary writers. Um, Tobiah was an Ammonite. His name is Jewish, but for some unknown reason, he identified with Ammonites. Um, both Sanballat and Tobiah were close to the leading Jewish families by marriage, and we know this from later in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. Um, Geshem was more distant from Jerusalem. He was a powerful leader of a large group of Arab tribes in Moab and Edom, um, Judah's neighbors to the east and south in a large area towards Egypt. Um, and so Kinder says, so with an already hostile Samaria and Ammon to the north and east, Judah was now virtually encircled, and the war of nerves had become. And we'll read more about that later. Um, so, just to give you a picture. So we see um, Samaria toward the north, Ammon towards that way. There are other tribes too, but these are the two particular leaders, uh, Sanvalet and uh, Tobiah. Jerusalem, and then Geshem and his family group um, was more distant, much more powerful, and they were down here and towards Egypt. So that, essentially, that's who they were, um, and they did essentially have Judeas, Judas surrounded. Um, we'll read about that later, but there were not only external um, forces pit against him, but also internal forces within Judah. Um, and to go on, one thing all the commentaries say is that we don't really know very much archaeologically about Nehemiah as well. If you look at maps of Jerusalem from the time of King David on, you'll see that the largest and most expansive size of Jerusalem was in the era of Hezekiah. And the city, as I showed you in Nehemiah's time, was really only the temple area on the north and uh, a smaller section going down to the south of the city of David. Yet even in that time, it was largely uninhabited. Um, the priests lived there and some other groups, but, um, but most, had, most of the returnees had gone to their um, ancestral homes. And in Nehemiah 11, we'll learn more about how the city becomes re-inhabited. Okay, going on to chapter 3. I don't know if you read it in your groups. 
Raise your hand if you read it in your groups. I'm not going to read it. <laughs> I can't get through those names. Um, here we see all kinds of people working together. Um, and these groups are joined by the phrase next to him or next to them. So a couple things we see here. Jerusalem's wall could not be rebuilt by only a few. Every available worker was needed. Um, we see that the priests began building at the temple area. Um, that's at the north part. They rebuilt the sheep gate. They think the sheep gate was where the sacrificial animals were brought in. They dedicated that section. They built a long section of wall counterclockwise as you look at Jerusalem counterclockwise. Um, and they dedicated that. And then the Levites and priests from outside Jerusalem rebuilt large sections, and as did the temple servants. So I assume that was kind of at the north side. Merchants built as a group. Goldsmiths, perfumers, they built sections on the west side and again on the east side. There we see that in 3 verses 8 and 31 to 32. Um, the Levites and priests rebuilding, we see that in 3 verses 17 and 22 to 26. We see that family groups built together. And the one that's mentioned, if I remember correctly, is Shalom, son of Haloshesh, who rebuilt with the help of his daughters, <coughs> which is kind of cool. Um, people repaired close to their dwellings. Some repaired opposite their, own, their homes. And this phrase occurs five times. And one repaired opposite his room. So they did what they could. Um, some groups rebuilt large sections and others rebuilt more complex sections. Um, somewhere along the eastern side, the wall was rebuilt on the top of the hill along the ridge, making Jerusalem a much smaller city than in the time of Hezekiah. Um, if you look at pictures of Jerusalem in the time, what they think it looked like at the time of Nehemiah, you can see that the previous walls were used for terracing, for gardens, and for um, yeah, for, for gardens and agricultural uses. To go on, rulers of sections of the city of Jerusalem and from other um, cities and groups of workers came from other cities. And that's three verses 2, 7, 9, 12, and 13. Jericho, Mizpah, Gibeon, Zanoah, Tekoa, Kila. Lots of names, places. So they all built together. Um, to quote from Tim Keller's commentary, had a great title. It's called, that's not a commentary, it's a talk he gave at the Gospel Coalition's Women's Conference in 2014. The, the title of his talk was Laboring for a God Who Fights for Us. And to quote from that, we notice the unity of the people, next to him, next to him. The commentators go into all the names and explain who they are, and I did that. And there's, I, I, I'm not going to go into that, there's just a lot to say there. Um, but we see that these are men and women, ruling class and working class, merchants and clergy, all working together. This is a foretaste, um, Keller writes, and a pointer to the fact that we are a holy, Peter, a holy people, as it says in 1 Peter, and that we are one. So it points, and, and quote, points to the holiness and inclusion of all believers. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a holy priesthood a people belonging to God, that you may declare the promises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Mm -hmm. So we are a community working together. Um, so the walls are rebuilt and completed in 
444 BC. And then we have what are called what's called 400 years of scriptural silence until Christ appears. So a couple more thoughts um, about rebuilding the wall. I think rebuilding the wall show that the Lord's hand on guidance, hands on guidance of Ezra and Nehemiah. We see that so many references to the hand of the Lord in Ezra and in one time in Nehemiah. Uh, seven times in Ezra and one time in Nehemiah. Um, we see that rebuilding the wall is a picture of the Lord's divine provision or providence. God set Nehemiah at just the right time and in just the right way. He was like Esther, um, as Jess talked about last week. He was raised up for such a time as this. The Jews had no king. They were a subservient vassal state under foreign domination. They were in Judah. They were no longer scattered people. Because of Ezra and Nehemiah, they now had a home base, Jerusalem, and the temple. And the people, all sorts of people who built the wall, were raised up for such a time as this. They did what they could. They put their hands to the task, and it was completed quickly. Rebuilding the wall is a promise kept by the Lord in answer to specific prayer based on the promises of God and his word. We have Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9. In quote, Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has showed us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He's granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Um, this, this is a side note, but that wall of protection is used again in Micah 7, and it's a metaphorical phrase, um, meaning that God, God as a wall is protecting Judah and Jerusalem. Then we have Nehemiah's prayer in 1.8. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them to the place I have chosen. And it ends with his request for God to give him success in seeking the favor of the king, which was answered positively. We have Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9. Um, um, Gabriel speaking to Daniel in answer to his prayer. No one understand this. From, uh, Gabriel says, um, Daniel's praying for the restoration of Jerusalem after 70 years. And Gabriel answers, no one understand, and understand this, from the issuing of the decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens. Um, Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Um, <laughs> as Rick referred to that, and Nancy, you read it a couple weeks ago at church, we don't really know what it means, but we do know that that was at the beginning. So I'm going to say it refers to Jerusalem. And then I, Isaiah 44 about God raising up Cyrus. Um, he will make his way straight. This is Isaiah 44. He'll rebuild my, my city and set my exiles free. <clears throat> Nehemiah was rebuilding a physical wall along with Ezra and the others. But along with Ezra and the others, he was rebuilding a people covenanted to God. Jerusalem is God's chosen place for his temple and where he established David as his chosen king and where his Messiah would come. Keller writes, Nehemiah was operating at a different stage in redemptive history from us, a point when God was bringing his salvation through people who existed as a nation state. 
and a nation state could not exist without a capital city with a wall around it with a wall around it the wall provided the security needed for urban life to develop creating a place for jurisprudence commerce stable social structures and that kind of thing and even in the old testament what we see is that jerusalem is a sign of something bigger not literal walls but walls of salvation are going to protect us from sin and death itself not a physical city but a spiritual city will come down out of heaven at the end of time and turn the heavens and earth into the new heavens and the new earth so rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem points to the new Jerusalem. I'm just going to read a little bit of Revelation 21. <clears throat> and there's quite a contrast. It is a gift of God to us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And it goes on to talk about um, the beauty of that Jerusalem, about how it shone like Jasper. It talks about the um, just the beautiful stones in the foundation and the fact that 12 gates were made of 12 huge pearls which sounds really wonderful and the great streets of the city were made of pure gold like transparent glass and I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple which is just beautiful and in response you know one of the ways I find best for myself personally to worship and praise is songs and hymns. So I just want to share a little bit of a, a hymn called Jerusalem the Golden. It's written in the 12th century. It's been sung over the Christ, uh, throughout the Christian world for a long time and in many different ways in many different congregations. Written by someone named by a monk named Bernard of Cluny. And it goes like this. It goes. Um, <clears throat> Jerusalem the golden descending from above, the city of God's presence, the vision of God's love. I know not, oh I know not, what joys await us there, what radiance of glory, what bliss beyond compare. How lovely is that city, the home of God's elect, how beautiful the country that eager hearts expect. O Christ, in mercy bring us to that eternal shore where Father, Son, and Spirit are worshipped evermore. Thank you, ladies. Mm -hmm.